Today I interviewed Dr. Titus Kennedy, who is a professional field archaeologist, and basically it was like interviewing a modern day Indiana Jones. I mean, he wears a hat and everything, you guys. I actually discovered him through this book, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus. And what I found was really interesting is that there were many things in here that I got to talk to my daughters about. It was interesting to them to know that there's tangible archaeological evidence for the gospel. Before we get started, I kind of want to give everybody a heads up. I was having some issues with my camera. Yeah, camera, I'm looking at you. You forgot how to camera. You let me down. It obviously worked. However, I did something where it just, I was blurry the whole time. So if it looks like you took your contacts out or your glasses off and I look fuzzy, no, you're not imagining that. It's my camera. <sighs> if only I could be on YouTube without technology, it would be much easier. But be that as it may, I really enjoyed this interview. It was very interesting, very fascinating. I hung on every word Dr. Kennedy said, and I hope that you guys get a lot out of it too. Hey everybody, I'm really excited about today's interview. I have for you today, Dr. Titus Kennedy. He's a professional field archeologist and adjunct professor at Biola University, a research fellow at Discovery Institute, has been a consultant writer and guide for history and archeology span documentaries and curricula, and uh, currently directs archaeological projects in Bible lands. Now, he wears many hats in the, the degree department with a BA from Biola University, an MA from University of Toronto, an MA from University of South Africa, and a Doctor of Literature and Philosophy at University of South Africa. So basically a modern day Indiana Jones. Um, Dr. Kennedy, thank you so much for coming onto my channel today. Yeah, Melissa, thank you for reading my book and having this discussion. Yeah, this is really cool. I was telling you before we got on, uh, the book that prompted this whole interview was Excavating the Evidence for Jesus. This is your new book. And uh, I apologize, everybody. My camera is just misbehaving today. So I hope you can see it. But you do have it in the background of your video um, back there on your shelf. And it was really cool. I mean, you have pictures, you have background. It is so dense with all this archaeological findings that you find. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, it was really difficult to narrow down the topics for this interview because there's so many archaeological discoveries in this book. So I will link more interviews that Dr. Kennedy has done in the description below if you want to check those out. First, about this book, though, why did you write this and what do you want people to take away from it? Well, I wrote it for a few reasons. First of all, in the realm of history, Jesus is one of the most important and famous figures in biblical archaeology. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the central figure because he's the central figure of the Bible, certainly the New Testament and uh, in Christianity. And I also uh, wrote it because I thought that we needed an update for a book on the archaeology of Jesus. Mm. There are quite a few out there, uh, maybe not as many as you might think. There's lots and lots of books on Jesus and various topics, but you know there are several books on the archaeology of Jesus 
that have come out since say the 1980s, 1990s, but none recently have come out and they don't have uh, an update of discoveries that have occurred over the last decade or so. Uh, and then many of them are not structured in such a way that they're, they're very easy to read or follow through, uh, rather than going chronologically through the life of Jesus. Some of them just focus on one particular topic or they jump around thematically or different chapters are written on different issues by different people. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to do uh, sort of a chronological take and you know somewhat comprehensive obviously i don't cover you know every tangent that we could go off on but as far as archaeological sites mentioned in the gospels that have been discovered archaeologically uh, inscriptions naming people in the gospels and all these things relevant to events in jesus's life i i at least mention that and some i cover in, in much more depth so it's sort of a, an update and a one-stop shop for the archaeology of Jesus and the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't think it's going to replace every work that's out there, but uh, I think it's a helpful addition. At least that was my, my mind in my mind when I was trying to put together this book. Yeah, and I, I thoroughly appreciated that as well, that it was a very focused uh, spotlight on Jesus and the gospels, Dr. Kennedy, uh, he, he knows this stuff. He's been there. And I think that this would be a really great resource for you guys to have when it comes to this kind of stuff, especially in apologetics, because archeology span can be a very powerful tool in showing people that yes, like this stuff actually happened. And I dealt a lot with Mormons in the beginning of, of my ministry. And one of the things that I struggled with, with them is the lack of archeological evidence for their beliefs. So I think that this is really valuable. Uh, so let's jump right into it. Chapter five, this is the chapter about fame and opposition, right? And you talk about the relationship between Mary Magdalene and you mentioned the, now correct me if I'm wrong, how to pronounce this, the Talpoit tomb? Talpiot tomb. Yes. Okay. I knew I was saying that wrong. Yeah. Or the family tomb of, of Jesus. In other words, uh, you say there's a hypothesis, hypothesis that this is the tomb of Jesus and his supposed wife, Mary. And I've heard about this before on these documentaries that we see mm -hmm. on TV, uh, that a lot of times can be very exaggerated. I'm wondering if you can tell us more about this and what this is. So this was a tomb that was discovered in the Talpiot neighborhood of Jerusalem. This is kind of south of the old city, south of ancient Jerusalem. So that's why they called it the Talpiot tomb. Mm. And it's, it's actually nothing unique about it. It's, it's a tomb that was in use from the first century BC into the first century AD by an extended family of Jews. And they were buried or reburied then in ossuaries there. So ossuaries are bone boxes. Uh, in typical fashion in Judea at this time is that people would be buried and then uh, or placed in a tomb. And after a year, you would go back and collect those bones and then put the bones in this box. And then the box would go on a shelf in a tomb. So it's essentially would save space. And and these were these were family tombs, again, extended family tombs. So this was one of those. 
And uh, it probably covered generations, a few generations at least. So, you know, spanning a century or so. A lot of bones of, well, a lot of individuals are represented in the bones that were found there. They only found 10 ossuaries in there, but there were many more people that had been buried in there. And of these ossuaries, five of them had Aramaic inscriptions and one had a Greek inscription and four of them were blank. So not all ossuaries were inscribed. That's also normal. When we look at the names, they're very typical names for people in Jerusalem of the first century. But you also find names in here that we find in the gospels mm -hmm. and, and that can be connected in some way to Jesus. And so that I think is what spurred this hypothesis that they can say, ah, maybe this was a, an unknown, the unknown family tomb of Jesus. So we've got some ossuaries in there. And, you know, one of the, the big ones, which is actually the most controversial of all the readings, is the ossuary that this documentary and, and some uh, book and articles claim says Jesus, son of Joseph. The problem is that if you actually look at this inscription, the first name that's supposed to be Jesus is a complete mess and it's just unintelligible almost the the reading that i've seen quite a few other scholars propose is that the name actually might be hanun um, it, it could be a few different things it's so hard to tell what i can say is that it is not yeshua it does not say jesus it, that is an implausible reading but it's got son of joseph it does have some of the same letters as Yeshua. And so that's how they came up with this. But I think they were looking for a way to promote this idea once, you know, before this was even known. Mm -hmm. So you've got that, that name. And then you have some others like there's a Judah, son of Jesus in there. Okay. So then you've got a name that is from the Gospels. And then you've got Jesus's, uh, you know, the Jesus name there. And, oh, Jesus had a son. Well, of course, we don't know which Jesus that was. But uh, one of the ossuaries also has two names on it in Greek. It has Mary and Martha in there. And they claimed that this was a different reading. They, they, they tried to connect this to Mary Magdalene, but it's actually two different people. And there are multiple individuals represented by the skeletal remains there. So then they decided we're going to do a, a specific type of DNA test on one of the bones in this Mary and Martha ossuary, because mm -hmm. they're claiming that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, who was supposed to be in this ossuary. Mm -hmm. they, they did a test on that and bones from the somebody, son of Joseph ossuary that's supposed to be Jesus. And they found that they did not share a mother. Okay, so it's a mitochondrial DNA test. Now, what does this tell us? They didn't share a mother, yes. It doesn't tell us that they were married, which is something they tried to give as an interpretation. They could have had the same father and a different mother. They could have been cousins. We, we don't know. It's mm -hmm. a, an extended family tomb. So all it tells us is that they didn't share the same mother. It doesn't say they're married. Uh, Matthew was another one of the names on the inscriptions. And so they say, uh, maybe this is Matthew of the Gospels or some other relative or son or something like that. But <clears throat> it's a lot of speculation, things for which there are many different explanations. 
Uh, but when it comes down to it, this Jesus reading isn't sure. There's no Christian symbology in the tomb, and there's no ancient text or tradition associating this tomb with Jesus. Hmm. And we might even go one step further and say, why in the world would the family of Jesus be buried in a wealthy tomb in Jerusalem when they were lower class people from Nazareth, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus was buried there simply because he was crucified there and a rich man gave him his tomb. So, so many things don't, don't add up there. And, you know, most scholars just have tossed it out or even argued against it, regardless of their uh, ideological or religious views. Yes. And I, uh, throughout your book, you mentioned this as well, that there are many things that many archaeologists and scholars preconceived or thought was wrong until archaeology proved it to be the other way around. So I thought that was really interesting as well. The next question, this is on page 252. You talk about something I have never personally really looked into. I have a few books on it, but I've never read up on it, uh, which is the Shroud of Turin. I was actually really uh, interested that you mentioned that in your book. Now, assuming that some people watching may not know what that is, can you tell us what the shroud is and share if you believe if it's authentic or not? The Shroud of Turin is a burial shroud, and it's called the Shroud of Turin because it's held in Turin currently, but that's not its place of origin. Mm. Uh, we don't we don't know for sure where its place of origin is, but the prevailing theory on this is that it could be the burial shroud of Jesus. That, that's why it is a, a relic. That's why it's a well-known and often studied relic. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been a lot of debate over the years about this. And you know, most of the debate is not revolving around, is this the burial shroud of Jesus or not? Because it's very, it'd be very difficult to demonstrate that. So most of the debate actually revolves around, is this a medieval forgery or is it ancient? from the time of Jesus, approximately. And I, I would say up until several years ago, the there was a lot of evidence that seemed to indicate that it was a medieval forgery. But there, there have been some new tests done very recently, and also uh, some very good evaluations of the earlier tests and explanations of what happened. So I'll just preclude this with the main criticism is there was there's some radiocarbon tests done quite a while ago that indicated that it originated in the medieval period but what they found is that it was repaired in the medieval period and those tests seem to have been from the repaired portion and there was also a fire in the medieval period which probably affected it um, mm-hmm. there are some different analyses that have been done that actually indicate it is uh, from ancient times, from the Roman period. And one of those is not from a radiocarbon test, but it's uh, from an analysis of the fibers and the weave that is the same as a burial shroud that was found in the Judean wilderness that dates to the Roman period. Uh, They also did analysis of the pollen on there and it's consistent with Judea and the Mediterranean region. So there are some really interesting things that at least point to it being a burial shroud from Roman period Judea. Now, we can't really prove that it's 
Jesus's burial shroud, but it has some other interesting properties like that. The image on it, no one can explain how that was made. You know, scientists can't reproduce it right now. So uh, it's, it's very curious. Uh, and then we do have ancient texts that talk about Christians holding on and preserving the burial shroud of Jesus and it, it making its rounds to these different cities. And so the, the idea is that it was held by different Christians, different churches, and, you know, it eventually ended up in Turin where we have it today. And they're saying this is a possible explanation. So whether, whether it's authentic or not, I guess it depends on what that question means. I think that it's authentic in terms of it's a Roman period burial shroud. Whether or not it's the shroud of Jesus, I can't say that. I don't know if we'll ever be able to say that, but I, I think we can't necessarily rule that out. Very fair answer. Yes, um, I think that that's a very fair way of hashing that out. For the next question, a fascination that I think all Christians should share and know a lot about is the resurrection and the empty tomb. Uh, it's hard to say which chapter was my favorite, but I have to think that it was the topics about the resurrection and the empty tomb in your book that I poured over. I really enjoyed it. Uh, can you share with us what you believe to be some of the best archaeological evidence for the resurrection and the empty tomb? Sure. So the, the resurrection, I mean, it's got all different facets of the evidence, I think. Mm -hmm. So before we jump into the archaeological evidence, I, I would just mention things like we have some historical accounts, some, some other historians outside of the New Testament Mm -hmm. mention the crucifixion and even resurrection of Jesus like Josephus does for example and Tacitus a Roman historian alludes to this so we've got first and second century sources talking about this whole situation mm -hmm. death burial resurrection of Jesus then we have something like the testimony of the apostles who were willing to be martyred for their faith mm -hmm. and We've got pretty good documentary evidence for several of the apostles being martyred, and, you know, and some possibly. <clears throat> Sean McDowell actually wrote a book on this, covers it really comprehensively. I so, believe it is doctoral dissertation on it. Yes, yeah. And so you, you can see that they, they believe this fully. You know, they were willing to die for it, and they were there. So it wasn't just something that they invented you know, they at least thought that it was real. And they're the eyewitnesses. That's a, that's a lot different than, say, martyrs for any kind of faith today, because they're just believing what somebody else has told them or what they read in the book. They're not dying for something that they actually witnessed themselves. Mm -hmm. So that that is one facet of the argument that's powerful. And, and it does connect to ancient historical archaeological evidence, because we're looking at the lives of the apostles. But, you know, it's not the empty tomb itself. Mm -hmm. So that brings us then to some of the actual archaeology that is connected there. And, and the first thing to address, I think, would be the tomb and the empty tomb. And then we can talk about some of the, the resurrection connection things. But the tomb, our, our best guess at access, it's not even a guess, I shouldn't say that, but the, the most likely location of the tomb of Jesus with you know 99 point something percent certainty 
would be the tomb and the church of the Holy Sepulcher. And I, I go through this in my book, the reasons why, but mm -hmm. I'll lay that out for the people watching just briefly. So first of all, it has this ancient tradition and it's not, it's not a Helena mother of Constantine went there and made something up type of ancient tradition. It was known by the Christians because they lived there. I mean, the people who witnessed Jesus when he was alive and post-resurrection, they lived in Jerusalem. They had children. They told their children where this stuff happened and their grandchildren and so on. You know, it was a small town by today's standards. Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, probably 60,000 to 100,000 people. And in terms of the geographic size, so much smaller than, than cities that we have today. So they're not going to forget about these momentous events that happened down the street from them basically mm -hmm. they passed that on and the the bishop in jerusalem was actually questioned about where the tomb of jesus was by helena and by constantine's architect so they didn't just you know pick a random spot hmm. now there's another thing that really helps uh, solidify this when they went there the spot was actually covered by a roman temple that had been built there by Hadrian, Emperor Hadrian. So Hadrian had this very interesting idea of how to combat or even eliminate Christianity. Hadrian was a, an emperor in the early mid second century AD. And so he had seen some emperors in the past deal with Christianity and its effect on the Roman empire. And he decided to take a, a different strategy. He saw that, that persecution did not work. Just throwing mm -hmm. people in jail or killing some of them, that didn't stop it. And he decided, I'm going to use some different tactics. So he fancied himself to be a philosopher, a Hellenistic style philosopher. You've seen statues of him. He's got the beard. He's got longer hair. So he's actually the first of the Roman emperors who adopts this type of look. Mm -hmm. He loved Greek philosophy. And he, so he decided, I'm going to try to argue with these guys and convince them that Christianity is false. And so he, he had these discussions with some Christian bishops and failed to convince them that Jesus is not God and didn't rise from the dead and Christianity is, is not true. Uh, so then he came up with another idea, and that was to sort of erase the historical memory of Christianity, but, but also syncretize it with Roman religion, which, which we see later, by the way, this whole thing with Christmas and Sol Invictus, that's the Romans put that holiday after Christmas had already been established as, as on December 21st. Another discussion for another time, but. That'd be a very it, interesting interview, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know people like to talk about that one. Yeah. I've, I've got some info in the book about it, but Hadrian built temples over the place where Jesus was born, over the crucifixion and resurrection site, over at least two miracle sites, the Pool of Bethesda and the Pool of Siloam. And so we know very, very clearly what he was trying to do. So Helena comes there and she says, you know, where's the tomb of Jesus? And the Bishop of Jerusalem tells her, and it's, it's underneath this double temple to Jupiter and Venus. Hmm. Now, Hadrian had built a similar temple like this in Rome. If you go to the Colosseum today, you can actually see it. If you go to the Colosseum and you look towards the forum, 
it's kind of up on the hill. It's this huge temple, really well preserved. And that one in Rome is, is to uh, Roma and Venus. So Hadrian essentially put the, the main god, Jupiter, over the top of Jesus's tomb, along with Venus, who Hadrian associated his family with. And, you know, he did, he did similar stuff in these other Jesus locations, right? So this is actually something that helps mark where the tomb of Jesus was, because mm. back in the, the early first, uh, second century, Hadrian knew, because of what people were saying, where the tomb of Jesus was, and he wanted to cover that, stamp that out. He didn't put it over the garden tomb. He didn't put it over the Mount of Olives or you know any other spot like that where people might come up with ideas. He didn't put it over the Talpiot tomb, mm -hmm. all right? So that's one really good indicator. But then we can look at some of the archeology span of the tomb itself and the architecture of it. Well, the gospels, thankfully, they describe the tomb of Jesus quite well, uh, in really in great detail. First of all, we know that it was outside the walls of the city, and we know that it was in a garden area that was used as a burial ground, mm -hmm. and then we know that it was carved into the rock, and it was, it was a new tomb also, so nobody else had been buried in there, and then it was sealed with this big ceiling stone, and, and there was a stone bench inside on which the body was laid, so Lots of details there. Well, when you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and you look around, do an analysis, you look at some of the archaeological excavations and discoveries that have been made there, what we found out was that that area was, it was first it was a quarry and then it was turned into a garden in about the first century BC. So it was a garden before Jesus got there. And it started being used as a burial ground. There are actually other first century tombs that you can see in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre area. One of them is kind of behind the tomb of Jesus, and they call it the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know whose tomb it is, but you can go inside it and see it. Uh, so that stuff fits. Now, when you look at the tomb of Jesus itself, it's very unique. It's a single chamber tomb. So it wasn't expanded. It's just there's the, the stone, the entrance, and then the room with the burial bench, and that's it. Now, there's no other tomb from this period like that in the whole Jerusalem area because they were always used as family tombs, mm -hmm. like the Talpiot tomb that we talked about earlier. They would put multiple people in there, families, generations. But the tomb of Jesus was not reused because it was immediately revered. And, of course, it was a new tomb, so it wasn't expanded already. Mm -hmm. Joseph of Arimathea was probably going to use that as his family tomb, but he never ended up doing it. And so it just had, you know, the one chamber that had been made. Mm -hmm. So to me, that, that is a huge uh, piece of the argument why this is the tomb of Jesus. It's, it's the single chamber. It was never expanded. It was never used again. You know, people revered that from the beginning. And then Hadrian gets there, puts the temple over it. So, you know, it fits the architecture, it fits the location, it fits the time period, uh, it fits the, the early reverence and recognition of it, both by Christians and non-Christians. And then, of course, you, you've got this question of the empty tomb, right? 
Well, everybody knew where the tomb was, but they didn't know where the body was. That was the problem. So it was empty. And so you, you've got a couple of main explanations there. Either somebody stole the body or Jesus got up and left. Mm -hmm. And the Roman version of the story we see in Matthew 28, 11 through 15. And that is the Roman soldiers go, they report to the priest and say the body is gone. And the priest tell them, hey, here's some money. Now go tell everybody that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. That's what happened. And, and if you get in trouble for failing in your duty, we'll talk to the governor for you. It'll be fine. And then it says that is the story which is circulated among the Romans today. So, you know, when Matthew wrote his gospel some decades later, that was still circulating. Mm -hmm. So those are the, you know, the two main uh, issues or the two main options we've got. And, and that is why so many scholars do agree that the, that it was an empty tomb, right? Not that they all believe that the resurrection happened, but but the tomb did end up empty. And, you know, their explanation would be that the Christians projected this resurrection because of the empty tomb. And, you know, they've got different explanations, some of which are going to be the disciples stole the body. Mm -hmm. And then that then we, we would move, I think, to your 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 next question that you were interested in and yes. that that artifact right the nazareth inscription yes never heard of that before and i was very interested if you could elaborate on that yeah it this is a, an incredibly important artifact i think it's it's very very interesting mm. at the least and people should know about it i'm really surprised at how few people know about it and how little it has been written about or included in books about Jesus or the Gospels or the resurrection. Yeah, this is the first I've heard of it. Yeah, it's definitely worth mentioning. And it's actually one of my favorite artifacts. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> period. Yeah, because because it's so intriguing. And there's a lot of there's been more discussion going around about it recently, which which is good. You know, some of it's been negative towards it, but it's good for people to become aware of it. Mm -hmm. So the Nazareth inscription, it's called that because it was discovered, or I should maybe say turned up in Nazareth, all right? It's not from a controlled archaeological excavation. This was actually discovered in the, the late 1800s. Uh, 1878 is when we were made aware of it first. Mm -hmm. So sometime before then, somebody dug it up or, or found it somewhere, but it turned up in Nazareth, and then it was eventually purchased, and it made its way to Paris. It's, it's still in Paris today. But this is a Greek inscription, but it's, a, it's an official Roman type of document. It's often called a rescript. And essentially, this is a letter that the emperor sent to a province, uh, to a Roman official, uh, with a new law. And they are supposed to then inscribe this and put it up for people to see so that they're aware of this proclamation. So it's an edict of Caesar. It calls itself an edict of Caesar, but we also call it a rescript because it was probably sent as a letter. Now the content, before I get to the content, I should say the, the probable date of this thing. Okay. Now just looking at the epigraphy, that is the style of the writing, and, and it talking about the emperor, and 
and it popping up in Judea, we can say that it's it should Max. be from the time between Herod uh, and about the early second century. So we're looking at end of first century BC to the early second century AD. So that's pretty easy to look at that. But then the, the language that it uses and, and the issues that it's trying to get at make a lot of people think that this comes from the time of Claudius, Emperor Claudius. So in terms of matching up with the gospels, Augustus was the emperor when Jesus was born. And then Tiberius was the emperor during the ministry of Jesus and the crucifixion, resurrection. Then you had a short time that Caligula was emperor, and then Claudius comes in in 41 AD. Mm -hmm. So if, if this is from the time of Claudius, then we're looking at it's, it's very soon after the time of Jesus. And that kind of puts the, it in the, the sphere of, could this be a reaction to Christianity? So the content, it starts talking about a, a new penalty, the death penalty, for anybody who has done something specific with a specific type of tomb. So the type of tomb that it describes is a stone-sealed tomb. And, and we're talking about it's in the area of Judea and Galilee, right? That's where it's found. Mm -hmm. So it's the same type of tomb that Jesus was buried in. This was not a Roman type of tomb. They, they cremated their bodies and they put them in, in funerary urns. So it is a, a burial that, that Jews used in the first century, this rock-cut, stone-sealed tomb type of thing. So that, that's the first thing. It's, it's specifically talking about those tombs, not just any burial in general. And then it says the, the death penalty is for people who they mess with those tombs, but specifically they go in and they steal a body from that tomb with wicked intent. All right. Now there were problems in ancient times, just like it still happens today. I'm sure just not as much where people would be grave robbers. They would go in and they would break into tombs, especially in you know, royal tombs, wealthy tombs, or, or sarcophagi, or a grave, and they would steal the stuff that people were buried with. Because in the past, people were often buried with some valuable things, sometimes coins, uh, sometimes jewelry, sometimes pottery, statues, etc. And so, you know, that was a normal issue. But but just stealing a corpse was not normally a big problem. And that would be something like you'd pay a civil penalty to the family, you know, for defiling them essentially. Mm -hmm. So this is something though, where they have, they have a motive behind it. It says wicked intent. So they've got an idea why they're stealing this body and there's something that they want to accomplish. Now the text doesn't, doesn't say it's Christians and doesn't say Jesus, but it's giving the same idea as what we see in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, that the Romans thought, probably thought, at least were promoting, but probably thought that the disciples broke into that tomb, moved the sepulcher ceiling stone, mm -hmm. stole the body with wicked intent, that is to perpetrate this idea that Jesus was resurrected and you know, start this superstition, as the Romans call it later. And they, they want to put a stop to that. 
They want to discredit it, first of all, and they want to make sure that nothing like that ever happens again in Judea or, you know, probably even the rest of the empire. And this is, this is accomplished or could be accomplished well by putting such a severe penalty. You get caught doing this and you get executed. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think that the Nazareth inscription could be really important in regards to showing that the Romans were aware of the resurrection story very early on and tried to put a stop to it. Very recently, uh, just a few years ago now, there was a, some new testing that was done on the stone because some people were disputing that this had any connection to Jesus and the resurrection rumors. Mm. So they did some testing of part of the stone to determine where the stone originated, like where it was quarried. Mm -hmm. And the closest match that they found was a marble quarry at the island of Kos, which is just off the coast of Turkey, you know, west, western Turkey. And <clears throat> so from that, they said that they thought the Nazareth inscription actually was, was sent there. And so it was talking about a tomb that was broken into on the island of Kos. Now, there was this, uh, they call him a tyrant, but he was the, the leader of the island of Kos in the Roman period during the time of Augustus. Uh, and, and the people hated him. And when after he died, they actually like, broke his tomb up and then dragged his body out in front of the tomb and, and desecrated it. Wow. And so they're saying that's what it was all about. You know, it had nothing to do with Jesus. So some people decide, all right, I guess maybe the Nazareth inscription has nothing to do with Jesus and it, it's from Coast. But if we look into this a little bit more, what, what do we see? Well, the marble is sourced from Coast. That's fine because the Herods actually used Coast to source a lot of their marble. Mm -hmm. We have inscriptions on that island from Herod the Great, from Herod Agrippa. Uh, by the way, this, the Nazareth inscription seems to be from the time of Herod Agrippa, who overlapped with Claudius. And Herod Agrippa really hated Christianity. Uh, he is the one that we see in Acts who performs the first execution of an apostle. So yeah, the, the marble was probably sourced from there, just like a lot of other things the Herodians did, but it, it goes to Nazareth and it's used there. And the description doesn't fit what happened to Nikias of Coast as well as it does the whole discussion with Jesus's disciples allegedly stealing the body. Mm -hmm. so. Just wanted to make that clear because I know some people have read uh, the article that talks about those testing and they might have questions. I've gotten that question before quite a bit. Now, I have one more question for you. And thank you, by the way, for covering that in detail. That was really interesting. Now, people are really skeptical about miracles and claim that the gospel writers exaggerated it or made it up. Uh, and, and they're just stories, including the miracles. We hear this often, uh, and we have a supernatural worldview as Christians. Uh, you have a whole chapter, chapter four, called Teaching, Traveling, and Miracles. And I was immediately intrigued by that title because it, it's all dedicated to covering uh, a part of this topic. Now, again, we, we rely a lot on historical testimonies, but can you tell us if there are any archaeological, if there's any archaeological evidence 
for Jesus's miracles? Yeah, so archaeological and ancient historical evidence for the miracles of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I, I would kind of divide this up into three categories, perhaps. So we can look at ancient testimony about the miracles of Jesus outside of the New Testament, so kind of ancient historical evidence. Uh, we can look at archaeological evidence for, for the miracle stories of Jesus, I might call them, the locations. Did, were they real places? Did they exist? Are the authors of the Gospels trying to say they think these are real rather than just you know allegorical or mythological? And then we could look at at least one archaeological artifact uh, that factors into this discussion. A, a couple of them, really, but one is quite early. Mm. So in regards to the historical text, we have some writers from the first and second century who talk about the miracles of Jesus. And when I discuss this in the book, I put four different sources in there. And, and these are coming from four totally different perspectives, really. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because all four of them are affirming that Jesus performed miracles. Yeah. They have different explanations for the source of that power. Mm -hmm. So it's like we've got Kelsis, okay? He's one. Who is this guy? He is a staunch critic of Christianity, a polytheist in the second century. And he says that Jesus gained miraculous powers in Egypt and then went back to Judea, performed miracles and proclaimed himself a God. All right. He doesn't say it didn't happen. He mm -hmm. said he did it. He got magical powers in Egypt. All right. That's his explanation. Uh, Egypt and the ancient world, by the way, was obsessed with magic. And, and so they were always working on magical incantations and they were, they were well known for that. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the pagan perspective, if you will, polytheist perspective. Then we have the Mishnah. And in about three places, the Mishnah seems to talk about Jesus performing sorcery or magic and leading Israel into blasphemy. And for that, he needed to be arrested and stoned. All right. Uh, I mean, that's actually standard with the Mosaic law. So what, what was going on in the Gospels? Because you see the Pharisees say the same thing, actually. Mm -hmm. They're saying that he performed miracles through the power of the devil, Beelzebub, right? Yeah. So that's what the mission is saying, too. So the Jewish sources are in agreement on that. Again, they're saying he performed miracles. They're just giving a different source. They're saying it's from the devil, not from God. And so that's why we need to, to catch him and execute him. So that's our second one. Our third one would be a Christian convert source, but he's also referencing some Roman records. So this is Justin Martyr, who was one of the first Christian apologists. He used to be a Roman polytheist. He converted to Christianity. He wrote this letter to the emperor, letter uh, to the emperor Antoninus, and this is the early second century. And he says in there, that the emperor can check the, the records of Pontius Pilate while he was governor, the acts of Pontius Pilate, to see that these miracles were performed by Jesus. So he's very confident that the emperor can consult the official Roman records, and he'll see that Pilate says, ah, 
yes, uh, Jesus did this miracle, or people were talking about Jesus doing this miracle, and so forth. So, you know, that's the Christian perspective is they happen, but you can check your own sources. Mm -hmm. Then we've got for the fourth one, we might call this one the secular. It's, it's more neutral. It's Josephus. So yes, Josephus was a Jew. He was raised in Judea. But if you read his history, he was, you know, he was adopted by the Romans as an official historian. He's much more of what, what we might think of as a secular type of historian today. And he's, he's quite neutral when he's talking about Jesus. But in one of his descriptions of Jesus, he talks about certain works that Jesus performed. And this, this word that he uses to describe it in Greek is something that's like contrary to expectation and really would fit the description of a miracle. So Josephus is just saying he supposedly performed these works. He doesn't say what the source is. Again, very neutral. He's just like reporting things. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got four sources from four different perspectives that are all saying Jesus performed miracles, first and second century, not New Testament. And that's really how people in the ancient world thought. And really, that's how half of the people in the world today still think. It's just that in the modern West, there's this prevailing idea of scientific materialism, the supernatural doesn't exist. So people just automatically discount miracles. But that's not what we see in the ancient sources regarding Jesus. That was our his, ancient historical testimony connecting to the miracles of Jesus. So these, these four sources outside of the New Testament from the first and second centuries. Uh, there's an artifact, though, that was discovered recently that I think factors into this discussion. Mm -hmm. And it's a cup that was found in the harbor of Alexandria dating to around 50 AD or so, so the, the second half of the first century. Mm -hmm. And this cup had an inscription that was dedicated to, or, or talking about through the power of, and it says, Christ the magician. So in Egypt, where they're obsessed with magic, they had heard about Jesus performing miracles, and they decided that he was this great magician then. So that's how they're thinking. That's how they're attributing miracles. And they thought that they could channel his power and probably would use that cup for some type of ritual. But, you know, what this tells us is, again, very early on in the, the province next door, people knew about Jesus performing miracles in the, the recent past, and they put in their perspective on it. And we see not long after that in Egypt in, in what's called the magical papyri mm -hmm. that they also included some mentions of Jesus and they knew about his casting out of demons and the, the protocol that the apostles used for that too. So they said that one of the, the methods, one of the kind of incantations for casting out demons was that you could use the name of Jesus, God of the Hebrews to do that. And you go, okay, how'd they know about this stuff? And they thought that it actually worked. So they weren't rejecting that out of hand either, which, you know, casting out of demons, I think we could, we would call that miraculous also. So, you know, we've got ancient historical texts, we've got this artifact that connects to it. And, and then we've got these locations and, and the detail that they're described in archaeologically 
which tell us that the gospel writers were intending to present this as reality, like this actually happened in a real time, in a real place. It's not just general myth, like it happened in Jerusalem in some time of the kings. Mm -hmm. On, for example, in chapter five, he says this, this miracle happened at the pool of Bethesda. And then he goes on to describe it. He names the specific place. Then he says that it had five porticos or stoas. Well, we didn't know what that meant until it was rediscovered and excavated. And it's actually a four-sided pool that is divided down the middle with the fifth stoa. So why didn't we know that? Well, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. It was covered up. But it tells us John was there at that time. He was an eyewitness. And he's trying to tell us it happened in this specific real place. He does the same thing with the pool of Siloam in chapter 9 talks about it. It's, it was a ritual bathing pool. Mm -hmm. And that was discovered basically by accident in 2004. Mm -hmm. And we, now we know the pool of Siloam, where Jesus told the blind man, go and wash. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of locations like that, where it's, it's telling us the gospel writers intended, this is supposed to be historical, like other segments of the gospels. And then we go and we look at those outside sources too, and say, Everybody seems to have think, thought that Jesus actually performed miracles. For those wondering, for archaeological digs in Jerusalem and Israel, how often would you say that you participate in those with hands-on? Uh, I, I do excavations once a year. Once a year. Yeah, at, at least. So sometimes twice a year, but usually once a year. So these things that you write about are not just, I mean, I'm sure some of it is, you know, secondhand accounts as far as, you know, other people that y'all write and you talk, but I think it's really great that it's just, you've been there, you've seen it, you've touched it, you've taken photos, uh, you've been uh, involved up front and close. Uh, so for those wanting to get a hold of this book, uh, just check out the description and we'll have a link there for you to get a hold of it. Uh, Titus, I would love to actually have you back on at some point to talk about maybe Old Testament archaeological finds. That is something of great interest to me and my family as well. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to add before we sign off? No, I think that covers it. I just encourage people to dig into some of this evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we talked about a few topics and we talked a bit about them, but there's a lot more information out there. Yeah, and a lot. You can yeah, spend hours and hours, so. Yes, and that's why I want to add more resources in the description, because you go over, I think it was uh, kind of a, kind of like a fast here, throw it at you, kind of tell me about this. It was 20 topics that you guys covered uh, with uh, Dr. Frank Turek, and it was all about the archaeological finds, and then, of course, the one with uh, Dr. Sean McDowell. So there's, you've kind of been everywhere uh, covering these topics. Very interesting, guys. So uh, thank you, Dr. Dr. Kennedy, for coming on and talking with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on.